Welcome to the Trinity Western University Chapel podcast. It is our prayer that these chapel talks would bless your heart and they would draw you closer to our Lord. We offer them to the glory of God and for the good of the world. Okay, thank you once again, worship team, for leading us. Um, You know, sometimes you get texts which you know are going to warm the heart. Sometimes you get texts that you know are going to warm the soul, and sometimes you are encountered with texts as a preacher which you know are going to challenge and are going to take some thinking. And we've come to a text like that this morning. I have felt in preparing for this message that this could be, and I'm sure it has been at certain schools, a university-length course dealing with the topic that we're going to deal with. First of all, though, I invite you to listen to the text for today, coming from Hebrews chapter 11, Verse 28, 28. By faith, Moses kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, if you are a brand new Christian and you're encountering Scripture for the first time, or even if you're a matured Christian and you're encountering Scripture for the 50th time, there are things that you will encounter in Scripture that might strike you as weird and even alarming. It might be the apocalyptic texts with all the strange beasts and the strange hybrid monsters. It might be the upside-down kingdom of Jesus and his vision for the world where you bless those who curse you and you love those who hate you. It could be some of the miracle stories which strike you as strange and you wonder how you're to understand them, like Jonah being swallowed by the whale or axe heads floating. But if you read scripture from the beginning and you get to a text like ours today or the story behind it in Exodus, and then you get to Leviticus, you might be struck most of all at just how weird and alarming is the fact of, as our text says it, the application of blood. It seems that the God of Scripture is absolutely fascinated with blood. And consider how odd and alarming it really is. The story behind our text for today. That if the sons of Israel, the eldest sons, are to be saved from the angel of death, the destroyer of the firstborn, as it's put in our translation, if they are to be saved, they need to, each family or between families, slaughter a lamb, slitting its throat, collecting its blood as it pours out of its body and then taking that blood and smearing it on the doorpost. That's how they're going to be saved. When you come to the book of Leviticus, the weirdness and the alarming nature of all the blood becomes all the more acute. If you do such and such, Aaron and his sons, I want you to take a bull, I want you to slit its throat, capture all its blood, and then sprinkle it and splatter it and smatter it here, there, and everywhere all around the altar. If you do such and such, take a ewe lamb. If you do such and such, take a goat, spill its blood, capture the blood, splatter it here, smear it there, sprinkle it here. As you consecrate Aaron and his sons, slay another animal, take the blood, put it on your right earlobe. This is a real text. Put it on your right thumb, put it on your big toe. In other words, symbolically cover your whole self in blood. It's disgusting. It's gruesome. As one scholar said, if you were in Israel at that time, 
Not only would you witness the regular slaying of animals, but it would have been like a massive barbecue because after they collected the blood and used it for whatever purposes, they would throw the carcass on the altar to be burned up completely. What is the deal with all of the blood? It's a bloodbath. It has led some people in our world and some Christians at certain times in their life of faith to say, is the God of the Christian Bible indeed bloodthirsty? It's a serious question and one I think that we need to address. But how I want to address that question this morning is not by embracing a hermeneutic of what scholars call skepticism, where we approach the text of Scripture saying, well, it's probably wrong and it's probably that God is bloodthirsty, but rather we approach the text with what is called the hermeneutic of love, saying God is probably wiser than we are and scripture is probably wiser than we are. So before just concluding that the problem must be God, maybe we can conclude that God is trying to solve a problem. Maybe all of the application in blood is actually God's attempt to try to address a very, very human problem that we could even address in our own lives and in our own world. And when we do that and we start working through scripture and you work from the beginning all the way to the end, you see that indeed, as you learned in, in Bible school or you learned in Sunday school when you were a kid, indeed, the blood is an answer to a human problem, a very human problem. Which problem? The problem of sin. Absolutely. And that is the Sunday school answer. It is the correct answer. But what I want to do with you this morning is to kind of dig in a little bit and kind of get a college or university level answer to this, even though I cannot say nearly everything that we could say on this topic. But let's at least scratch the surface with this. So the first thing we need to do is to just have a working definition of sin. Okay, so here's a good working definition, sin, the most basic you can have in scripture. What is it? Sin, harmartia, is a missing of the mark. So the image here is of an archer who has a bow and an arrow and he's shooting to hit the bullseye. If you miss the bullseye, you have hamartiad, you have sinned. To sin is in a basic sense, simply to miss the mark. Okay. So once we have that definition of sin, what else do we need to know? Let's look at what we might call a phenomenology or a psychology of sin according to scripture that every single one of us can identify in our, in our own experience. Two truths I wanna to give to you. First, sin is costly. Missing the mark is costly, which is to say, when you miss the mark in any way, shape or form, somebody or something, including yourself maybe, has to pay. If you're the one sinning, or if you're the one sinned against, whether it's voluntary or whether it's involuntary, somebody always has to pay when we miss the mark, when we sin. Just take some examples. If you are the one who sins, if you're a bitter person, you will pay for that with your emotional life in other ways. If you are a brittle person, you will pay for that in your relational life because people won't want to be too close to you because whenever they do something, even involuntarily, you're touchy and you take offense to it. If you accidentally or on purpose break somebody's phone, you're going to have to pay for that phone. They're going to make you pay for it. Or if somebody sins against you, for example, somebody missed the mark on me 
a couple of months ago in the parking lot when I was grabbing some groceries at No Frills, I come outside and my front bumper had been completely smashed in. Unfortunately, the person didn't take responsibility for their missing the mark in a bad way, and I was stuck paying for it, $500 deductible. ICBC paid somewhere around $3,000 for it, which means even taxpayers in British Columbia are paying for that person missing the mark. Sin is always costly. It always costs somebody something in some way or another. Say somebody insults you. Take the subtlety of how we make people pay sometimes for sinning against us. Somebody insults you. How do you respond? Well, you might insult them back and you directly make them pay for their sin in that moment by trying to make them feel how they've made you feel. But you may go behind their back and engage in reputation destruction. You may distance yourself from the person, make them pay because you're going to be as cold as ice. Relationship with you, with them, is no longer an option. Sin is costly. Someone or something always has to pay. Look at what's going on. Final example. In Israel and Palestine right now, more specifically with Hamas. The Israelis were victims of atrocious crimes, of butchery. They were harmed. And now Hamas has to pay for that. And they've got to pay for that with their blood. But Hamas did what they did because they felt that they were the victims of Israel's oppression and that they were justified in making them pay, which is to say, note very, very well, shedding their blood. Blood in scripture is a symbol of life. When you miss the mark and you harm me by sinning against me, I am justified in taking away your life somehow. In other words, hear it, shedding your blood. Ultimately, that's what it comes to in human relationships. When you sin against me and do violence against me, I am justified in paying you back so that you atone for your sin. This is how it goes. But here's the second truth. What's the tendency? What is the human tendency with reference to sin? Is the tendency to go, you know, I am really responsible for this. I am responsible for the hell that has become my life and I am responsible for the hell that has become this world. Or is the tendency instead to say, you, you're responsible for the hell that has become my life. You're responsible for the hell that has become my world. Oh, yes, yes. Most often in human life, the tendency is to say, well, I may have done wrong, but I'm basically innocent. I don't deserve what's coming to me. I don't deserve to have my blood shed, but you, you are definitely guilty and you definitely deserve what's coming to me, you beep to beep right? That's the human tendency. And where does that lead us? Well, that leads us into very bad places indeed. It leads us into violence and more violence and one side justifying the violence against another side and the shedding of blood. So what does God do in this situation? Well, God comes in with his sacrificial system, which is the shedding of blood. By the way, you know, the question is not so much, is God a bloodthirsty God, but rather how bloodthirsty are we? God's dealing not with his bloodthirstiness, with our, but with our bloodthirstiness. So how does the sacrificial system deal with this? Well, in the first instance, it confirms the truth 
that we all know and all feel and all are tempted to act out of, that sin is costly, someone must pay. Indeed, in Israelite sacrificial system, this animal now has to pay. It confirms the truth. It's absolutely true. We all know it in our own experience. Someone or something must pay. But then it does more. It tries to shatter that second truth that I talked about. It shatters the human tendency to say, well, you're really the guilty one, and so I am more justified in spilling your blood than you are justified in spilling my blood. It tries to shatter this. How does it do it? I don't have a lot of time. So uh, contrast is a mother of clarity. So Rene Girard, this scholar, talks about how it happened in other traditional religions. They too had sacrificial systems. But here's how it would work. There's a key difference between the way they did it and then in the revelation of God, the way Israel does it. This is mind blowing, check this out. So they would go into their community, say peace had been lost in the community. Violence was breaking out in the community or the crops weren't growing in the community they would go into the community and they would find a very imperfect person and or an imperfect animal. Maybe the animal was lame. Maybe it was blind. Maybe it was crippled. And they would say, that animal is responsible for the hell that has become our community or the difficulties that we're experiencing, this animal or this person. And so they would take that person or animal, they would put it on an altar, they would slit its throat, and say that guilty party is now dealt with and peace will come back to the community. So you see the difference. There's the guilty one and we are fundamentally innocent. So the concept is called the scapegoat mechanism. Maybe you've heard of that before. Here is the scapegoat. But what Israelite religion did, what God gave to Israel, is not a um, scapegoat, but it gave them a, anybody wanna guess? A substitute, a substitute. It completely flipped it around. What is Israel not, what kind of sacrifice are they not allowed to take? It must not be lame. It must not be blind. It must not be crippled. Why? Because God doesn't like lame, blind, and crippled things? Not at all, but because in that context, he was not going to allow this scapegoat mechanism to obtain. Absolutely not. That thing is pure. That lamb is perfect. It is the best of the best of the flock. The guilt is not in it. In fact, what Israel had to do is to take its hands, Aaron, and they laid their sin symbolically on the animal. So the animal was dying for their sin. Now, what does that do to a community? Well, probably it makes them feel that I am going to hesitate before putting my finger onto somebody else because I am reminded daily that I am part of the problem too. It coincides with Jesus' principle where he says what? Before you go and take the speck out of your brother's eye, maybe take a look at the log in your own eye. You see how this works and how the sacrificial system is addressing that? Don't point our fingers out there. There's plenty enough sin right in here. I am guilty for the breakdown of the goodness in this world and the breakdown of relationship and the violence that comes into relationship, not just other people. And maybe then when that is my starting place, I'm ready to hold out a hand and say, let's be reconciled together. Can we work this out? I'm gonna be a peacemaker. All of this is a type of Jesus Christ. Can you see it? Jesus Christ confirms the truth as well. That sin is costly, it requires a great payment and he has paid the ultimate cost. 
But then Jesus also solves the tendency of the human heart. Because he says, yeah, you need somebody to blame for the hell that has become your life. We need somebody to blame for the hell that has become this world. Fine, says the God of this universe. I will take the blame. Scripture says he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteous of God. He doesn't become the scapegoat, although in a sense he does. He becomes the substitute who truly bears our sin in order to take it out of circulation. And what is the consequence of this for human relationships? I end with this. It's so unbelievably profound and so unbelievably important. Ephesians 2, 12 through 18. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself, warring tribes, no, one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body, his body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. Beloved, I present the gospel to you today and the mystery of the accomplishment of the cross. Indeed, it means reconciliation for the world and new creation to come. Thank you, God above.